This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. The historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Ferrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. What a week ahead we've got for you. It concludes with Payrolls Friday, but a ton of data in between and a little bit of politics, no doubt, to keep you up to speed on as well. Guy Johnson wrapping up a mental Q3 and getting ready for the back end of 2019. Mental Q3, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yes, it was. I completely agree. In fact, um, it, it was it was really bumpy in the middle. But the kind of the tails, let's call those July and September, I quite quiet in terms of the way the risk assets actually behaved. Equity markets over the period here in Europe were up, but only just. Um, the bond market certainly bounced around a great deal in August, um, but then kind of got back to where it started in in many ways. I, I, I'm shall, just... I, shall I finesse? Guy Johnson wrapping up a mental quarter that contained a crazy August. Is, is that yeah, better? <laughs> that's basically it. August was insane. I the rest of you. it, but but I but I but I think the the tails are actually quite important because considering what has been thrown at these markets, John, I'm kind of stunned that equity markets are where they are in certain in, in many ways, um, and I think that's down to the fact that you've seen this migration towards kind of bomb proxy like stocks that have done very well and that i think has provided some support but i think if if you kind of think about where we are with the fourth quarter i think there are significant risks going into that will santa arrive this year santa didn't arrive last year december was really bumpy kind of how we set up going into into the fourth quarter, I think, is fascinating. I think you've got to convince people that the economic data is going to look better. Now, you can either convince them with the actual data or just convince them that things will pick up because the circumstances are revolving to the point that it will generate better economic outcomes. And I just don't think people are convinced of that. I think we had some upside surprises come through the data in America through September, which caught a lot of people off guard after aggressively chasing yields down through August. But beyond that, I don't see signs of stabilisation in Europe. I see very few signs of stabilisation in China. And I start to hear more and more people coalesce, the, coalesce around the idea of a much softer growth outlook for the US economy going through 2020. I'm increasingly thinking about that moment in 2017. We had the growth scare of 15, growth scare of 16, and we had a load of stimulus off the back of it. And what it did was set the foundations, lay the foundations for a really, really big 2017. So we've had the equivalent of 15, 16 now. We had 18 and through much of 19. The data just hasn't picked up. Are the conditions going to turn around whereby 2020 looks a lot like 2017? And most people I ask that question to just say, no, this is different. The stimulus effort required has been different. It hasn't been produced in China in the way we would have liked. And they don't see that data materializing in that way anytime soon. And you've got to get through and deal with trade, which I still think, according to everybody I speak to, remains the number one issue for the market. Let's bring in Marcus Ashworth into this conversation. How was Q3 for you? Um, well, it's not over, guys. We've still got a few little minutes left. Um, I just think that you know, the bond story is still the big one. We've had a pullback from it, but you still look where Italy is on the quarter, down a massive 140-something big figure, uh, 
basis points, pardon me, even. Um, and indeed, if you look at where the U.S. Treasury yields are, they're still substantially lower. So that's the big the thematic of the um, quarter, along with the continuing appalling deterioration in German manufacturing. And I think that's now become a global thing. Manufacturing is in recession, uh, possibly globally. All the OECD uh, revised forecast down below 3% for global growth tells us is that, um, you know, they're catching up with it. I think what's interesting is to see the uh, German institutes starting to revise down again their 2019 uh, forecast. So we, we've got a, a theme. One thing I'll slightly disagree with you um, there, John, is on China. You may not be seeing much signs of stability, but they have chucked a lot at it. I agree. So at some point... I would argue by around now to the next quarter, you should start to see um, uh, some pick up. Yeah, I guess what people are picking up on markets is that the policy response has been less aggressive this time around than what we saw in early 2016, that it's been very targeted. The stimulus effort effort has been very targeted and Mm. limited relative to what we saw in 16. Uh, Well, yes, okay. It needed to be targeted because 2016 was just a just literally chucked everything at it and they overdid it and they lost control and that's the reason why they've, they've, they've learnt their lesson. The real bigger thing I think most importantly for quarter four is tomorrow the Japanese raise their sales tax from 8 to 10%. Yeah. That is never a good thing regardless what the Bank of Japan needs to do and they will be doing it because they're going to have to keep uh, play catch up the ECB. Um, it's going to see a downturn in Japanese growth, Korean growth, and I think the thing through, therefore, is whether or not China is uh, in some ways, you know, how, how it affects whether one affects the other or not. But it's it's not, uh, you know, that's not a good thing when you raise um, VAT and, and sales tax. question on that, if I can, Marcus, because mm-hmm. this has been a big part of the discussion for Global Macro. Last time they did this, it went from 5 to 8. And most people assumed that 8 to 10 was going to follow quickly after. Of yeah, course, 8 to 10 has been delayed twice. Mm-hmm. With that in mind... Do you think the impact will be different this time around? Because last time what we saw was boom bust in Japan. A lot of people trying to get ahead of two very quick sales tax hikes quickly after each other. They didn't really materialize, but essentially it generated boom bust in the economy. Is this different this time, going from 8 to 10 after being delayed twice? Do you think the economy can handle it? No, very serious question. Um, I remember I was there at the time, and it was about an 18-month or so delay. They were planning. I mean, people were focused just on the first one. Uh, to be fair, I, I, they knew it was it was supposedly coming, but everyone was guessing that it was going to go so badly it would be delayed, and indeed it was. So it was a, an awful shock. And yes, in, in percentage terms, this is a less of a, a jump. Um, the economy, you could argue, is in a better shape. But Abe has been there for quite a few years now, chucking everything at it, and nothing really has moved the dial. So, and really, you could argue, again, Bank of Japan, what more can they do? They already own virtually all the ETFs. They've done negative rates. They've got bond yields, which are incredibly low. Can so, they weaken the yen? And they can't weaken the yen. That's the point. They, they, they can't, everything they're trying to do to weaken the yen, and it's simply not weakening. And that is the real problem. Um, you hit the nail right in the head there, exactly what I was just about to say. Thanks for that, guy. Uh, but it is about the yen and the fact it's too strong and that, that therefore they're going to have to do something, shake shake the room to um, snap the yen out and If of they it. do that, what, what response do they get from the White House? Well, um, this is interesting um, and not a good one. And indeed, I think that's something which they have to weigh out very carefully. Does it matter anymore because they've got a trade yes. deal? Oh, no, it definitely does. 
Um, but I mean, matter to what? Matter to Japan, US? Well, no, I just kind of to, to to the to the Japanese. They've got a trade deal in place now with with the United States. Does it mean that we are blunting uh, the effect of the White House's concerns around currency? No, uh, I th- I think that the, the White House works on a, on a rules of its own, and regardless of existing trade deals on or, or potential ones, they can change and move the goalposts at any one time. So I, I don't think that the Japanese are going to end up. Uh, well at this because whatever the measures they do both for the Bank of Japan indeed to try and do anything at the, at the end um, or indeed on guards on, on competing uh, on trade terms uh, they're going to end up winners on this one I'm afraid so I fear that the, the Japanese economy could struggle it does have the, the Rugby World Cup going on at the moment which sort of helps and we've got the Olympics next year which should help you know substantially more but will that be enough I don't know I, I personally I'm a big fan of Japan and Japanese stock market etc um, etc et so I hope this time around it will be less but the truth is, no one knows. Conversation continues. Marcus Ashworth is sticking with Guy Johnson and myself, Jonathan Farrow. Next up on the programme, a conference for the Conservative Party and an embattled Prime Minister. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. John Furrow's in New York. I'm Guy Johnson, joining him here in London. The Conservative Party conference is underway in Manchester. We had the first of the kind of the big set pieces uh, today. Uh, we had the chance of the Exchequer on his feet a little bit earlier on. Uh, talking about spending uh, quite a decent amount of money, talking about raising the minimum wage, um, a whole range of kind of uh, options being put on the table, basically designed to help the Conservative Party win a general election. However, you do have to wonder whether or not what we saw announced today would be useful in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Is the fiscal policy required for winning a general election different to the fiscal policy being required to dealing with that no-deal Brexit? Um, Marcus Ashworth is here. He's usually got a thing or two to say about what's happening within this party. Um, Let's get a take on what he expects. Boris Johnson, under a lot of pressure, both in terms of Brexit and his personal life, what is your sense of of what the Conservative Party conference is about this time? Is it simply about, A, delivering Brexit, and B, getting there via a general election? It's ten words, which is get Brexit done, and uh, I've got the rest of it, something about and our NHS, police, and... But the first bit really is the only bit that matters. Well, that's the, that's the key bit of the message, and that's because it's got a Brexit strategy. Uh, you have to ask uh, any of the opposition parties what their actual strategy is, what they would do with Brexit or not. They they don't have one, um, and that's evident. One is is totally revoked, but what do you happen when you revoke something? What do you, how do you handle that? How do you go back into the EU, which, you know, whether we like it or not, things have changed in the last three years. You can't just walk back in there and expect it all to be uh, peaceful and dandy. Equally... Um, you know, we know the Labour Party policy is to is to think about it after after an election. So in that sense, that's the key motto. They've got their their election uh, three words, which was take back control for the referendum. Uh, Brexit. This one now is get Brexit done. It's simple. Everyone knows what that means. Um, and I don't really care about the rest. The Labour uh, Party conference went to absolute, you know, it was going really, really badly and then was massively saved by the Supreme Court. So in that sense, we haven't seen a Labour... Uh, poll bounce but equally I think we would have seen a a massive Labour poll dip if it wasn't for the Supreme Court um, decision so we end up we're in that stasis but there is a a clear um, blue water between the two parties and it it seems 
that the Liberal Democrats are taking away from more from the Labour vote at the moment. That's that's an interesting dynamic. Boris has got to just weather the storm here. Uh, all, all, all manner of different things being thrown at them. Some of them are a bit scurrilous. Some of them are potentially very serious. The only one thing I would really focus on is whether or not there is any monetary uh, thing with the Akuri, uh, Jennifer Akuri allegations. That will obviously be much more serious. But I imagine this was, will probably blow over. And um, we wait to see what, what if anything that the Parliament, Burkow, etc., can cobble together, which will change the dynamic. But I don't think there's any change to the October 19th deadline on the Ben, ben Law. I don't think that will happen because it's been well thought through and bring it forward to October 5th, I think, would would would, uh, would not go down well with a lot of the uh, ex-Tory types. So in that sense, there's, we just wait to see if there's, uh, what, what can be delivered. Probably in the end of next week, we're thinking, for a um, definitive government, this is what we want to do with Brexit to the EU. Marcus, if we do, and when we do get an election, does Labour need a Brexit strategy to be successful? Yes. Why is it different abs- this time around compared to the election of 2017? Well, 2017, they made it not about Brexit, and they were superbly skillful on that with their social yeah. media strategy with Seamus Milne, which didn't actually involve uh, accounts from the Labour Party. Or it was using all these sort of uh, ancillary ones with, like, do you want to be like me type stuff, which was uh, very cleverly done, uh, particularly with to, to the sort of youth vote. But um, this time around, it's going to be hard to get it off the Brexit um, and back onto what uh, Labour views itself as, as winning territory, which is austerity and possibly NHS and, and, the, and the, the familiar tropes. This will be very difficult for them to get off that. The only thing they can argue about is, you know, is against the Brexit deal. If a Brexit deal comes, that's difficult. Marcus Ashworth is going to stay with us. Marcus joins us from Bloomberg Opinion. The FTSE 100 finishing at 74.08 uh, for the uh, cause of Boris Johnson, remember, speaks on Wednesday. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital. On DAV Digital Radio, you are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. We were getting absolutely hammered in the debt market. 85 cents on the dollar now. Your effective yield on the 2025 note is now 11.6%. Are you surprised? I, I was in no way shocked that they pulled the IPO today. I was in no way surprised. I don't think anyone think should be surprised at that. But what's amazing about this is that the credit market is lagging, not leading the equity story here. That's what I find absolutely phenomenal. When this market took this debt and this issue came out way back in 2018, I believe September 2018 it was, the order book was five times the 500 mil the company was originally looking for. They upsized the deal to 702 and the yield was 7.875%. What were we ever doing down here? And I remember there was a massive disagreement between the individual credit rating agencies as to what credit rating they should put on this debt because they didn't collectively, as far as I could tell, really have a clue what was going on with this company. And here we are today at 11.6%. Not because the credit investors woke up, but because public markets pushed back aggressively against the valuation of early 2019. Ashworth is itching to get in. Yeah. Um, okay. 
Right. The first reason, the only reason why WeWork issued bonds was a precursor to test the ground before an IPO. So the people who were involved in it and invest in it were not really clamoring to own the debt for WeWork, quite far from it. They were there to put down a marker and say, look, we want a good allocation in IPO. So when the confirmation is that the IPO is definitely not going to go ahead, then why do you need the bonds? So that's why it comes cart before horse or horse after cart is wherever you want to look at it. Is This is never about the bonds per se. It was just having a public security in situ which made the IPO therefore uh, you know, due diligence wise and, and, and a trial run. So this has always been about you know getting that unicorn great valuation of which of course has gone shuddering to a halt. So the investors in it are probably ones as I said are more more interested in, in um, were interested in getting in getting that equity a- angle to it. So now the the bond is is unfortunately uh, an afterthought and uh, you don't need it anymore. Deserve doesn't need but, anymore. But Marcus, with, with that in mind, we have seen this story before, and it didn't involve an IPO. I remember in August 2017, Tesla came to market with a 2025 note, and for that credit rating, at that maturity, it was a record low coupon. I believe it came in at in and around three five point three five point four percent. And the broader takeaway for me, looking at some of these tech companies. This one is not one, of course, but they like to think they are in the credit market is that somehow the attractiveness of the equity story at any given time is being reflected in the credit market in a way that traditionally we don't think should happen. Typically, you lean on the credit market to be telling this story before the equity side wakes up. And that's just not what we've seen in some of these high risk companies over the last couple of years. Well, that's because this is, as I said, this is a, this is a, uh, you know, I wouldn't blame the credit market for this because this is, this is no self-respecting credit person with anyone near this stuff. But the point is, is that, um, you know, particularly with, you know, you said you said things with Tesla, you know, again a very interesting case. But the, you know, this thing is is, um, well, pardon me, WeWork was 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 principally a SoftBank play. So you're looking at the credit of SoftBank really is yeah. what your ultimate uh, credit risk is, is what you believe. Now we have a situation where you can no longer bank on SoftBank being there yeah. to pick it up. Is, so is that what's happening this afternoon? Is there a is there a recognition in the credit markets? This is a company that's still got to raise money. That that is being called into question. Do we do we still believe well, that yeah, SoftBank is going to be there? Because if it's not, then that's a real game changer. Well, I think we I think we can read into that that SoftBank might be there, but not definitely they be there and equally you know you, you're bearing in mind this is a very liquid bond this is this is held as i said by people who are institutions who are hoping uh, for a forward play which isn't hasn't That's a happened. good point someone spits the dummy who who's a natural buyer of, of we work bonds uh no one therefore that's never really been tested up till now now it comes where you, we see we see a, effectively i'm not calling it a false market we're calling a a market which isn't really reflecting the actual nature it's a really valid point yeah. we have a distressed asset now though don't we Effectively. I mean, we're priced for a distressed asset anyway. Uh, and, uh, right, and, as and it the, should be. This is now normality. What we had before was just some sort of make-believe waiting on IPO, and it's finally, you know, that the, the dream has been shattered. So what's the path to recovery, the path to profitability? Because for me, it's not just a CEO change. I think we've become obsessed with the governance problems of this company. We still have a business model problem, don't we, Marcus? Uh, I think we have a fundamental business problem, for which I do not have the answer. No, it, do we have a business problem? There are other businesses that make this model work. Maybe not as aggressively. You can make this model work. I really just did make this model work. Can make this model work. You'd be on quite a different scale. I, no, I appreciate. Approach. I appreciate. It. There's a there's a scale issue and there's an approach issue, and that's what management has now got to figure out. 
is what is this business? Basically, it's been a cash burn machine. I, I, I got made some money to work in London property, and, and every other word that comes out of their mouth is, is we work because they take all the property that they can't find anywhere else and homes for, and it's, and it's all down to WeWork, and they've been very aggressive. That is good. That, that's the bit that's going to change. Which is the scary part. You look at where New York, um, London, and, and, and multiple other sort of big yeah. cities around the world are going to take a real shocker if, if WeWork was to stumble further, should we say. Or just stop doing what it's been are doing. Are they too big to fail in that context? That's not really good. Uh, and that's where SoftBank has to come in, or does it? Because then we, then we have a situation where by this, this can't let, be let to Oh, I think that's increasingly part of this conversation, the, the impact that WeWork has on commercial real estate. Oh, it's going to be enormous. We, we saw that building in London. And also Vision 2, SoftBank's yeah. ability to raise more money. We saw money that building do... in London that was going through with a sale, uh, and the buyer backed out because most of the most of the leasing was to, to WeWork. I think this is going to become more of a problem. And the covenants are such that like, they put a huge onus on the building's owner in terms of the way that they, uh, A, the covenant works, and B, the way that the fit-out works and all this sort of stuff. So this is, yeah, this is going to put London property in a very I've had several people ask me whether or not they should be even renting at WeWork. Well, that's, well, what difference does it make, you could say, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it becomes a whole confidence thing. We will see. I think this is uh, a, a ripple that could turn into a wave that could turn into maybe something a little bit bigger um, at a time when things like Brexit are certainly front and centre for the London property market. Marcus, thank you as ever. Marcus Ashworth joining us from Bloomberg Opinion. More still to come. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow closing out Q3 as we get set to begin Q4. Your closing price is on a FTSE today on the FTSE 100, down a quarter of 1%. The equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, the DAX firmer by four-tenths of 1%. A nice little pickup on the S&P 500 going into a week full of key economic data in America. We're positive three-quarters of 1% on the S&P 500. ISM's coming up tomorrow. ADP report coming up Wednesday. I believe we get some initial jobless claims in between that and payrolls Friday, all just around the corner. The data out of China today, actually okay. A slight improvement, still sub-50 on the manufacturing PMI, but beneath the surface, pink things picking up. New export orders, new orders, doing a little bit better than I think some people expected. But it met just a wall of scepticism. This is the take from Michael Zizis and Morgan Stanley. We have more conviction that without a circuit breaker, escalation continues over the medium term, meaning any pause is fleeting. Investors should price in all announced actions, even if further delays or pauses are announced. Now, Guy, this goes into next week. Trade talks set to begin October 10th. Vice Premier Leo Huck coming over here to Washington, D.C. to meet with officials of the U.S. administration for high-level talks. And then after that, we go on to, I believe, October 15th, where a lot of these tariff hikes were delayed until. And if the talks don't go well, I guess you can assume that those tariffs are going up. Yeah. 
And that will be certainly something that Boeing will be paying attention to. Uh, Boeing shares just under a little bit of pressure uh, at session lows right now. A bit of breaking news going through from Bloomberg. Uh, basically, Boeing is coming out, John, and announcing a series of internal changes designed to improve the way that the company operates, really from the drawing board to the, to the factory floor uh, in, from a safety perspective. Um, the market's not overly convinced by this in terms of what is going on here. This was meant to be, uh, I suspect, a little bit more dramatic from Boeing. Um, it's establishing a whole range of new um, areas within the company to sharpen the focus on safety, and the stock is the stock is down. So clearly, A, the market's not that impressed, and B, clearly the market is assuming that this is probably going to cost quite a lot of money as well, um, which is just worth paying attention to. My colleague, Julie Johnson, uh, doing that interview with Dennis Mullenberg over the last few minutes. John, look, I think trade is going to set the narrative for the next quarter. Um, I think the the difference between Q4 last year and the Q4 this year is actually not about trade. I think it's about the Fed. This time last year, the Fed was hiking. This time, the Fed is cutting, uh, which I think makes it very, very different. But I think trade is going to be – is still going to be – the, um, the, the narrative that the market hangs on to. Andy Sinko is joining us. What is his take on what the fourth quarter is going to bring, Andy? Yeah, hi, Guy. Uh, hi, John. Um, yeah, I think uh, trade will be one of those big things. And obviously the other one is uh, whether the Fed gets around to cutting rates once or twice more in the remainder of the year. Uh, you know, the talk of uh, impeachment, uh, somebody was tweeting earlier today whether Jay Powell wasn't the biggest winner from the impeachment fight since now, you know, the president will be focused on the Democrats and probably focused a little bit on China, but the Fed might get a free pass here. The biggest <laughs> winner last week was job. probably Justin Trudeau, to be honest with you, <laughs> Andy, <laughs> because he had his own scandal and now no one's talking about him. Right, right. Yeah, him too. He's a big winner. Here. A lot of people got to bury some bad news. Because of the headlines yeah. coming out of D.C. I want to get you to the take of Barclays. This is from Ajay Rakshadyaksha, who said the following. The world economy continues to decelerate and we expect global growth to remain weak into 2020. While avoiding an outright recession, key policy risks remain unresolved. Some big calls here. We're now forecasting a no-deal Brexit in Q120 and see little likelihood of a full resolution of the U.S.-China trade conflict. We think investors should reduce exposure to equities in favour of high-yielding fixed-income assets. What do you make of that call, Andy? Um, well, if you like high-yielding fixed-income assets, how come you don't like equities? I mean, they're kind of the same play, right? Leveraged, uh, leveraged bets on uh, a company's ability to pay back either their debt or make big earnings. Um, I, I'm intrigued by European equities, especially the DAX here, right? The most exposed to the Chinese economy, the most exposed to, to manufacturing. And, you know, here was an index that looked like it was just in horrible shape in August. I mean, it just got creamed. Fell through the 200-day moving average. I felt like a fool because I thought, hey, look, this index is going to keep on going. I think I said that in June or early July, and it just fell apart, but it's bounced almost all the way back to where it was. And the 200-day moving average is now curling higher, you know, with a couple more weeks like this, and we're going to be talking about a, a bullish Andy. golden cross for the DAX, which, you know, to me the, is uh, this opposite to what we keep talking about, uh, which is the decelerating world economy. Yeah, I, the, the DAX is the high beat to play on trade, though, isn't it? I give, yeah, if, oh, yeah. If trade, if trade works, you're going to get a bigger bounce of the DAX than you're going to get in the S&P. Absolutely. But if, trade, but if trade doesn't come through, then you only have to listen to what German companies are talking about at the moment. And I'm, I, I, the, the outlook is not good 
Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that is fully priced at this stage. Yes, the, the, the German market may have recovered off what was a really, really big downturn during the month of August, but mm-hmm. I, you've got a situation where Itis and Krupp's a good example today, just burned through another CEO. New boss, <laughs> I, yeah, and things are going. not going well there. Um, that there's genuine fear in Germany about what is happening, um, about this, this shift from, from combustion engines to electric. Um, yes, the unemployment numbers today were a little bit better than expected, but the hours being worked in Germany are not good at the moment. Um, the, 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 the government doesn't feel any pressure at the moment to, to invest at this stage, but there couldn't be a better moment. Why, why, is, why is that a recipe for buying into German assets? Because markets like, well, equities especially, tend to Discounting try and discount mechanism. this really bad news ahead of time. Yeah, I know. And, and, and look, I, I, I hear you. It's kind of this uh, crazy notion that, you know, six months from now, the German economy is going to be markedly better or, or uh, earnings from German companies are suddenly going to be markedly better. Um, but, you know, we've factored in a lot of really bad news here. We factored in the you know worst possible things from the trade deal, perhaps not quite a uh, breakdown we, of the talks. Have we factored talks, in but... EU sanctions from the United States? <laughs> I, think I, I, I don't know. The list the, just keeps going on and on and on. Uh, yeah, I know. But I think this is off the table here because, you know, how can the Trump administration put well, this on, angering Congress even more so? Because Boeing's about to have a WTO ruling that's going to be the thin end of the wedge. And you're yeah. going to see European sanctions being applied. Well, but that's a little different case, isn't it? That's I agree. The WTO but it's, but it's years later comes along and says Boeing can now put on, or the U.S. can put on, sanctions because of that stuff. You know, that's a whole different ball of wax than, than the president unilaterally declaring that we're going to put tariffs on uh, auto imports from Europe. Uh, you know, maybe people are thinking that impeachment puts off all the worst parts of the trade scenario. You know, we just keep muddling along. Yeah, tariffs go up on Chinese companies, but it's not the end of the world, not the end of the world trade. And certainly we're not closing the doors to trade other than on Huawei. So, you know, I know I always sound like I'm taking the optimistic end of things, but if price is truth, and I'll throw that aphorism out there, you know, the German stock market seems to be quite stable and optimistic here. And I, and, and I have to question some of the really awful uh, scenarios that people trot out because the same thing with the S&P 500. It's holding here at almost record highs. Like what, what am I supposed to take from that, that the whole stock market is out of their mind? We'll continue the conversation, Andy. Andy Sinko joining us alongside me, Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world. John Farrow's in New York. I'm joining him here in London. My name is Guy Johnson. Let's talk about one of the biggest stories that we've seen over the last few weeks, maybe culminating today. WeWork finally and formally pulling its IPO. The reaction in the credit markets, uh, we saw the company's bonds getting absolutely tanked. Marcus Ashworth was here a little bit earlier on. His suggestion was that a lot of the holders of those bonds were only holding the bonds because they wanted a slice of the IPO. With the IPO gone, why hold the bonds? Uh, let's uh, get another take on this. Andy Cinco, your thoughts on A, what's happening to WeWork's bonds, and B, what is happening with WeWork more broadly? What does it tell us about the state of the market and the market's uh, view of, of where risk should be priced? 
Right. Yeah, let's start with the second one there. I, I, let's take it from the side that WeWork is a really um, bad governance story and not a bad, so much bad business model story, right? And I'm going to say that because if you compare back to 1999 and early 2000, right, we had companies going public for the sake of going public, Pets.com, The Globe. They really had no business model whatsoever. Now, other companies before them had gone public and and done well, um, uh, but they ended up being the tail end, and nobody wanted to own those kind of eyeball, you know, fairy tale stories anymore. Uh, WeWork is a little different, right? I mean, they they are an operating company, granted, losing lots of money, um, but really the problem here was governance and the CEO and the CEO's wife and things that we didn't didn't see at all in the uh, IPO internet blow up uh, of 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So. Uh, I'm going to chalk up WeWork to being a, a bad apple in an otherwise, you know, not so great uh, basket. Um, because the other thing we're going to switch to talking about very soon is the Ramco's IPO, and we're looking at roughly a one trillion dollar company that's going to come public, and that's going to steal away a lot of money. You know, and that might have been part of the WeWork problem, right? You're trying to trot out a really questionable company in the midst of this enormous deal that's going to come in and pull in a lot of money. Um, let me also take this in a, in a slightly different direction. Uh, WeWork was going to be another one of these billion-dollar-plus unicorn IPOs. We've seen several of them this year. Lyft, Uber, and Peloton also fall in that uh, genre. You know, the billion-dollar-plus deals, actually $500 million and up, they tend to uh, produce less uh, spectacular returns than smaller IPOs. I ran the numbers for this year. Uh, so a deal that's uh, 500 million and up, that's generated returns of just about 50% since the IPO date. If you had bought smaller companies than that, 200 million to 500 million, the gain is 100%, double. So you buy a smaller IPO, you tend to see bigger gains, and that held true also for the whole of the bull market from 2009 through the end of last week. Andy, to what degree do you think that's linked to the fact that a lot of these companies are staying in private markets a whole lot longer? So when the bigger companies arrive, typically it means they've been in private markets and actually produced a lot of growth already that's been captured by the private market. Mm -hmm. And just the eyes of public markets have very little left to offer relative to what we've seen with the smaller companies coming to market. I would tend to agree with you on the notion of that, that sure, a bigger company is probably going to experience slower growth or let's say all their best days are behind them. It's kind of a you know get out at the top idea. But John, that doesn't really hold up over time because when I went back and I looked at the last uh, 10 years of the bull market, you know, just as this year was this big disparity between small and large deals, that was also true over the last 10 years. You get def about double the return by buying a $200 million to $500 million IPO as opposed to a 500 and up. You know, that's about 49% versus roughly 23%, something like that. Um, so it seems to me if you buy the smaller company, you're getting a company that's not full of hype, a little below the radar perhaps. You know, maybe they're smaller, maybe they're earlier in their growth phase. Um, but perhaps also, you know, there's just not as much public pressure to do this enormous deal and get it right and get it out the door. You can kind of, you know, get it done and get it out there, you know, and let the company grow and do its thing yep. without a lot of people badgering it. Andy, great to have you along for the ride today. Thank you very much indeed for joining John and I. Andy Cinco uh, joining us. Up next, we are going to carry on the conversation about what the rest of the week is going to bring. It all culminates, of course, in the payroll number on Friday. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow closing out Q3 on the FTSE 100 with a marginal day of losses, declining by a quarter of 1%. On the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, the DAX firmer by four-tenths of 1%. And a really nice session in America, the S&P 500 up by seven-tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq firmer by eight-tenths of 1%. The story of foreign exchange, a stronger US dollar, euro dollar, down by a third of 1%. We have not seen a 108 handle since May of 2017. Well, we got to see one today, very briefly. Euro dollar right now at 10907. The story of the moment, the dollar at the strongest level since May 2017. I wonder how long before the president has a word or so to say about that. With the dollar index heavily weighted to the single currency, trading with a 99 handle through much of today. In the bond market, Treasury yields unchanged. Your yield right now, 168 on a 10-year, on a two-year maturity. That note right there, yields come in a single basis point to one62 2%, so a slightly steeper curve driven by the front end of the curve going into a massive week for economic data in America. Your week ahead looks a little something like this. Overnight, a rate decision from the Australian Central Bank, the RBA in play for another rate cut perhaps. Tomorrow, US ISMs in America and Eurozone CPI on the continent. Going through to Wednesday, the appetizer for payrolls Friday. It's the ADP report Thursday. Initial jobless claims, U.S. factory orders and U.K. PMIs too. And on Friday, two big events for you, two really big events. Payrolls Friday in America and the Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell speaking in Washington, D.C. So quite a little week lined up for us, Guy, as we begin Q4. Clarida speaks twice as well, which I'm going to certainly be paying attention to uh, to get his ongoing take as to, to what is going on. Payrolls is clearly the kind of epicenter of all of this. Um, last month, not great. Do we carry on with that? What kind of a, uh, a picture do we have uh, when it comes to U.S. employment? This still seems to be the kind of pivotal factor on which the U.S. economy rests. Uh, can it be held up? Will it be held up? Manufacturing data, I think, is going to be interesting as well, John. Um, kind of where are we with that in terms of uh, the story? Are, are we going to continue to see weakness? Is that weakness, as we are starting to see in Germany, going to start feeding through into the into the wider um, consumer space, some evidence but little evidence thus far. But yeah, payrolls will payrolls will be interesting. Any particular aspects of the payroll you're looking out for this time? I know it varies depending on kind of where we are. I think increasingly a lot of people are becoming more and more focused on the hours work component of the payrolls that report. That was good last time round, and it was actually pretty decent. Uh, put that together with the deceleration we've seen in jobs growth. I think if you can get the jobs growth deceleration to settle down a little bit and then carry on seeing hours worked at elevated levels relative to where we have been in the last few months, I think a lot of people will take some confidence from that. The last thing that we want to see is a decelerating payrolls growth picture together with some softness in hours worked as well. That's going to get people worried. I think jobs growth coming down a little bit is perfectly natural. It was unlikely that we were going to carry on printing 200K every single month in the way that we had been. I remember two, three years ago, people were telling me, get ready, it's going to slow. And then it never did. Well, this year it really has started to slow. We're looking for 148 on Friday. That's the median estimate. The previous number was 130. So we're 
in and around the levels that most people would estimate are the kind of levels that keep the jobs market in equilibrium. So not contributing to a rise in unemployment. But, but what does that mean for December? So I, I'm hearing more and more people pouring cold water on the idea that we're going to get another cut coming through in December. What kind of a number do we need to see on Friday to either confirm or deny that? Um, because the Fed, certainly, and you listen to people like Evans, are are much more kind of on the fence and much more kind of genuinely data dependent, maybe. So what kind of data do we need to see from, from the payrolls number, maybe to get the Fed either convinced that August, sorry, that December should happen? Yeah. Or not that that I think is the question that I need that, that we need to take away from it. So Maybe I think we've got to look got to look a little bit more broadly at what is happening elsewhere. There are of course a couple of channels whereby the global slowdown can start to seep into the U.S. economy, and I think that's what they're looking for evidence of now. Is the weakness abroad starting to hit the U.S. economy? Where's it going to pop up? We're seeing it in the FX channel with a stronger dollar. Don't know what kind of impact that will give. Few officials yep. will have their own opinions on what that means. Unlikely to see it through the trade channel. Where I expect it to come up, and that's why I think the earnings season for Q3 and looking ahead to Q4 and beyond is so important, is through corporate profits. And if we start to see the outlook for corporate profits continue to roll over, then there's going to start to be concerns that the next lever to pull is in the labor market. That's when you start to see it in hours worked. That's when you start to see claims pick up. I don't think any of these Fed officials want to wait for initial jobless claims to start picking up and for hours work to start rolling over. That's the thing they don't want to wait for. What they want to get ahead of is what is happening with corporate profits, what is happening with markets. And at the moment, I think there's a lot of evidence for many of these officials to sit back and say, you know what, let's wait and see. Financial conditions are still loose. The labor market looks resilient. But we did see some cracks in the consumer last week. And the U.S. consumer, and Guy, you and I have had this this discussion, the U.S. consumer really is the last man standing in the developed economy right now. Absolutely. And there's a little, little, just a couple of cracks last week in the confidence number, shaped by, I think, the equity market, and the spending number as well wasn't as firm as people thought it would be. I think there's also a debate around inflation at the moment, and I think the Fed falls into two camps on this one. there, There is clearly a belief among some that if inflation were to fall back, then that is the biggest threat because getting inflation higher in this environment is much more difficult than getting it lower. But there are still some out there that clearly believe that an overshoot in inflation is something that needs to be worried about. And maybe that's why they are taking a slightly more cautionary view on whether or not we should see further hikes at this point in time. I still think that kind of the former group is in the majority, that getting inflation up from a lower level is going to be critical. So I think any kind of hits to any kind of evidence that maybe that inflation expectation story from the market or inflation more broadly is starting to fall back again, I think will be taken as a clear green light for maybe that December hike to come in, John. Big week. Uh, cut. Yeah. Big week ahead for global markets. Coming up, Guy Johnson and myself, Jonathan Farrow, on top of it all for you. From New York and from London, this was The Cable. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Goodbye, Q3. Looking forward to Q4.